edition of Glop Culture, the podcast featuring me, John Pahoritz, Jonah Goldberg in Washington, and Rob Long in Los Angeles. Glop Culture is brought to you by Encounter Books. Our pick this week is a broadside, a short and powerful and punchy essay, The Truth About the IRS Scandals by Charles Johnson. Go to EncounterBooks.com and use the coupon code RICOCHET for 15% off the list price. So, guys, Jonah, how are you? I'm well. How are you, John? I'm I'm okay. Rob, you? I'm I'm well. I just I just want to make sure that nothing happens uh, during this next uh, you know hour that's going to cause you to to get up and leave, John. Just uh, get up and Rob walk is, out. <laughs> Rob is referring to the fact that I was on a panel uh, this week at the uh, 92nd Street Y, um, uh, Why talking you- about uh, talking about. What it means to be pro-Israel uh, in front of an unbelievably hostile uh, audience, and in the middle, I just decided that I'd had a long day and I'd had enough, and I and I walked off the stage, which I have, which I regret having have done you, because have it was you ever just, done it before. I, no, the uh, twenty years ago, I walked off the set of Crossfire because <laughs> I had been invited on by Michael Kinsley to talk about something else, and then he wanted to talk to me about. Uh, you know, a, a, a staffing scandal at the New York Post where I was, you know, where I was then an editor. Right. And I said, Michael, I'm not here to talk about that. We were going to talk about X. And he said, I'm the host. I'll tell you what we talk about. And I said, no, if you want to talk about that, then I'm going to walk off. And he kept. Did you walk off on the air? I walked off. Yeah. Oh, yeah. How, how does that work? You get up, you walk off. Well, you I just take well, the mic off and I, mean, I walked TikTok. off the stage. But the mic is like attached to thing and by your belt and you, yeah. it's like it's always an ordeal. Like, did, do you ever – walking no, on a TV show, it seems like just off screen, there, there's yeah. all sorts of awkward physical stuff you have to do that, that kind of ruins the moment. You know? <laughs> well, no, well, well, I'm getting out of here as soon as I unclick my thing. Sorry, what was that? It was a pretty dramatic – that by flipping over the desk in a Hulk smash kind of motion. Yeah. Right. Exactly, but that I that I that I did not do. So. Hey, Jonah, have you ever walked off of something? Um, hung up on a lot of people. Um, I'm trying to think if I've ever walked off. Um, n- certainly nothing so that makes such a good story I can actually remember. No. Oh, I hung up on Man Cow during a book tour. I was on the Man Cow show. Yeah, that's 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 pretty. That's that's a low bar because I mean sometimes. He forgets you're even a guest and just wanders off like an Alzheimer's patient in the snow. Yeah, and, just, yeah. yeah I don't terrible. even remember. I don't remember what, what, what it was about, but basically I said, okay, you're not going to let me talk, and I hung up the phone. I caused a French guy to storm off an NPR show I was debating him on. Really? Yeah, that was pretty cool. He just got so fed up with me and disgust and hung up. Like, my right favorite – my that, f- sorry. Some, some NPR show. I can't remember what it was now. My favorite storming off story takes place at a dinner party in London at the home of the uh, late Nobel Prize winning playwright uh, and self-hating Jewish anti-Semite Harold Pinter who uh, had Paul Johnson, the historian, over to his house for dinner uh, because – 
Paul's wife and uh, Pinter's wife were great friends, and they proceeded to have an argument about something or other. Pinter was a very, very, very hard leftist. And in the middle of the argument, Pinter walked out of his own dinner party. <laughs> Stormed out of his own house. Stormed out of his own house. <laughs> hey, but can, can we get back to the 92nd Street Y for a second? Yeah, so, yeah let's so hear how, right. how is it that the audience of the 92nd Street Y, which is basically, you know, I, I think it's actually Israeli sovereign soil. Entirely incorrect. <laughs> panel, the panel was me, the head of J Street, and the uh, and What's the head J Street. Of, J Street is the left wing uh-huh. group that fa- that was formed in 2008 for the purposes of providing cover to democratic and liberal politicians who wanted to do things that were inimical to Israel's interests by claiming that they were in fact supporting Israel's interests and that it was only it was groups like you know APAC and others right. that Israel. were actually hurting Israel so it's a giant uh, you know it's a giant cover act but it's become Sounds you know like J-Date. Pos- right well J is a you know J, 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 is, J. J, J is the eye of apple for Jews right you know, if you have the iPhone and the iPad and the iBook, with Jews, <laughs> yeah. you got J's. J, J Street, J, 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 J Theater, J in yeah. Washington. Anyway, so what happened was, as far as I can tell, is that most of the people in the audience were members of J Street or friends of J Street. And they were very, very hostile. And they booed me and they hissed me. And, you know, it was, it was, it they, was unpleasant. Do they, actually, do they actually hiss? They well, they s- hissed. What happened was – really. Here's what happened. People started to go boo and someone said, you're not being civil and started screaming. And then I said, great. So you're booing. Why don't you hiss also? So they went, OK. <laughs> Wait a minute. That's- People were shouting, you're not being civil at you? Yeah, because I said at some point, look, I'm trying to be civil. And then this uh-huh. guy started screaming at me. Anyway, it was a it was a. It was a madhouse and I <laughs> and in fact, really, so that I wouldn't lose my temper. I walked off because I just I was I was just it was a it was a mess and I shouldn't have agreed to do the panel in the first place and then it was written about so then I had to write about it because somebody one of the moderator who edits the Jewish Daily Forward a liberal Jewish newspaper wrote this thing saying I was rude and and ugly and mean and horrible and I threatened Jeremy Benemy the head of this is the best thing I wagged my finger in a threatening and condescending manner yeah. No Jew gonna... has ever faced worse. But by, the, by, the way, by the way, how do you wag, how do you wag a finger threateningly? The guy was like six, seven feet away from me. What was uh, I you have, suddenly? You, you my have very was mysterious, like Terminator yeah. Two. My finger was mysteriously going to extend out yeah. into a stabbing weapon and well, go nobody right. Knows you have hidden you have hidden skills. Nobody really knows. So so basically, I mean. It was a it was an auditorium filled with uh, uh, angry Jewish people arguing about Israel. No, Am I it was right? An auditorium filled with two hundred and fifty people who agreed with each other about how you know Israel is the cause of its own woes and sufferings, and me arguing with them, and David Harris of, a, of the American Jewish Committee arguing with them, and a moderator who basically I think agreed 
more with them than than with me and 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 me. So that was uh, that that was the dynamic. It, there, the argument was me versus two hundred and eighty people, which reminded me of the time Isn't I was that kind in of seventh like- grade. <laughs> I was in seventh grade in nineteen seventy two at the Columbia Grammar and Preparatory School on ninety third and Central Park West in New York, and a speaker came to speak for the McGovern campaign. And the entire school went to an assembly to listen to the speaker from the McGovern campaign. There, of course, being no speaker from the Nixon campaign. And at some point, the guy said, does anybody here support Nixon? And I raised my hand. And I was the only person in the entire room to raise my hand. Right. So here's my question. Like, and of course, I don't remember why I I supported Nixon because my my parents supported Nixon. I don't know. You know. Because he wasn't the governor. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's right. Right. (laughs) Um, Why did you – do you ever agree to do – I mean you obviously you agreed to do this at some point. What was the mindset there? Because I can think of nothing worse. I mean maybe it's just I don't do this for a living. Nothing worse than having – when somebody invites you, well, we really love to have a debate. Like I just can't think of anything worse than that. Like the idea of standing around in a panel debating something. I mean Jonah, how often do you do that when you're not the – Jonah does it constantly, but you know why? I do it a lot. Why did you argue with another other side? Why did you do it, John? Uh, come on. Well, come on. Part, look, I mean, partly because it's part of my livelihood, but part of it is I don't mind the arguments. I'm, I'm sort of, you know, I mean, John, I grew like I grew up like you on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Okay. I, I was always used to being outnumbered. That's fine. And um, yeah. Um, but Jonah, can I throw a chill in your in your blood? Sure. Wow. Okay. Hold on. I did this for free. I feel like you're wagging your finger at me. Wait, what? I did it for free. You did it for the Jews. It's okay. I you can't walk out. I, I knew you did it for free. free. If you they walked take out. me, I wouldn't have walked out. Yeah, yeah right. No, there, when Jonah was sitting there on stage debating Peter Beinert, which to me would be like getting a root canal, <laughs> at least at least there was a check involved. Most right now, I see yeah. Peter Beinert and my Peter Beinert's kids and my kids go to go to you know go to the same school, and I would be happy to say to talk to him in the hallway if somebody would pay me. <laughs> to do that, but otherwise it's not going to happen. But uh, you know, look, I, I debated Peter a bunch of times in part because we got this is before his latest journey on the Israeli on the Israel front. Uh, but we got along well. We kept it civil, and he served as a pretty good straight man for me. Um, well, that's and, true. People and, with no sense of humor are good straight men for you. <laughs> um, and uh, um, but I, I kind of like debates. I mean, the problem is. There are certain people like I, I've been asked once or twice to debate people like Katrina Vandenhoevel, and I've just sort of said, "Nah, I just I, I find her to be so unpleasant in real life that it's kind of not worth it." And like me losing my temper is a really bad look. But um, <laughs> yeah, uh, I once I once um once debated Nadine Strosen from the ACLU. Oh yeah, um, and she gave me some. It was weird. She gave me some fantastic – this is pre-9-11 – some fantastic advice that she got from William F. Buckley. So it was kind of like the circle being closed. It was nice. She said that William F. Buckley told her that the one thing she should always do when she's on the speaking circuit is travel with her own alcohol. Because you never know <laughs> where you're going to end up in the middle of the night. You can be in Asheville, North Carolina at 11 o'clock at night. Yeah. You can't find a drink. 
and it's true. The problem is after 9-11, it's very difficult to travel with your own alcohol. But um, yeah, now that's you one love of my that. that that'd be the the big advice. I got some advice for you on when you're when you're debating. You think, oh, it's going to be it's going to be like uh, hold, a, you know, grab the lectern this way, or start with a personal anecdote, or make sure yeah, you, you you go for the you go for the jugular first. Uh, you know, draw for, but no, travel with your own alcohol. Travel with your own alcohol. Yeah, that's so, how, that's how it so what are we talking I, about today, guys? I, I, I was just saying, I remember, I remember a friend of mine had a, had a, uh, had a writer he, he particularly loved and um, was just a, a, just obsessed with this guy and had read everything he'd ever written, all of his books, um, and was just worshipped him and found out that he was teaching uh, a class at UCLA and kind of um, asked him to lunch. And uh, he lived, the guy lived in L.A. and so took him to lunch. And he seemed kind of strange. And, and he's trying to explain uh, – he's sitting in a restaurant trying to explain um, – how much this writer meant to him, how much he loved this guy's work and was talking about writing and the craft of writing and things. And, and he kept talking and every now and then he'd say something and the writer would go, oh, yeah, oh, and then kind of shift. And about three or four times this happened when the writer went, oh, yeah, and shift. And then finally the writer leaned up and leaned over and said, uh, now don't turn around, but the, chick's gonna cro- the chick at the bar is going to cross her legs again. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, my God. They, they were, it was the saddest thing ever. Like, he, the guy just was not interested. That was that was that was the only only transfer of of uh, of, uh, of information that happened at that lunch was just you're in the wrong seat. <laughs> well, gentlemen, the question arises okay. about how to talk about certain things. So we all had a lot of fun last week uh, or earlier this week when the news came that. Uh, North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un had, uh, had his uncle executed. And because the North Korean government put out this extremely purple statement about how he was a cur and a dog and, a, and you know, they smashed his head with the truth and all sorts of things like that. And there were a lot of jokes about how, you know, ooh, he must not have, he must have argued with him at Thanksgiving dinner, ha, 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 and all of that. And I did it. Everybody did it. It was... But, of course, what appears to be going on in North Korea is a massive, you know, purge, which is always, uh, which is always a wonderful uh, time for the uh, public at large because when they start purging the senior elements of the party, that's when the screws also start being put to everybody right. else in what is apparently inarguably the worst country in the world, the most horrible place to live, the most monstrous place to live. Um, do you think there's something off? I mean, one can't help but you know see the humor in a you know in 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 a young guy offing his uncle that way, you know, because we make jokes about uncles at Thanksgiving, and yet you know, obviously, there is nothing funny about North Korea. I mean, they're literally to say it's the opposite of funny. It's yeah, it's, it's you know, it's a living horror. So, but. Well, I make a I, lot of fun of North Korea. I mean, I'm, I'm always making fun of it. I, 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 I kind of am also interested in it as a country. And I always feel – I mean, I do feel guilty about it a little bit because it is the worst place on earth. It isn't, it isn't quite the same thing, but it's sort of like making funny Nazi Germany jokes during the war. It's like it's kind of – or even during Stalin's time, right? It's, it's just kind of grim. And, um, and it's, it's comic in the sense of being sort of funny and outlandish and crazy and you can't believe that these people really believe this nonsense or that they that in 2013 they're putting out 
uh, 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 press releases that are, are, are so that, you know, they're sort of Mel Brooksian. Um, you know, if Mel Brooks were going to do a movie about uh, dictatorship, it would be North Korea. He, would just, he wouldn't even he wouldn't even change the hats. You know, those big they're, 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 the, the hats are funny. They wear they're bigger than normal hats. They're they're rounder and they have a bigger slope and they're just giant <laughs> and like, like comic hats. You know, it's hard not to laugh, but it is the worst place on Earth. And when it all, you know, hits the fan, as they say. Um, it's it's not going to be funny. You're going to that all the the, the the work camps and the death camps and the concentration camps and the labor camps and the starvation and what people did to survive and what people are going to be doing to survive as 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 food gets more more short the next few years. You know, it's it's awful. It's awful. Yeah, um, no, I, on the I, other I, hand, every time one of those bastards gets shot or gets his head caved in, um, even if it's by a firing squad, uh, that's good. Well, okay, good. fair enough. Well, it's good in the sense that they all deserve it, right? Anybody involved in that and running that brutal regime deserves whatever bad things happen to them. But it's not. And also, I think good. he was a traitor. He might have been a traitor. He but might no, have been worse than if, if, if he was actually the uncle was actually the voice of reason and the moderating influence there, and the guy with the with the back channel to China and all that. No, but I've I've been running this column for every few years for a long time now about how you know. Genera- a generation from now, whenever North Korea finally implodes and those people get to have – forget freedom, all the rice they can eat, right? Um, there's going to yeah. be this incredible um, hand-wringing moment where everyone starts pointing fingers saying, why didn't we do more sooner? And you know, you always hear liberals talking about um, – uh, we always hear liberals talking about getting on the right side of history and the arc of the moral universe and all that kind of nonsense. And the thing is, is that the North Korean regime needs to go. And yet, if you ever talk about trying to do anything to get rid of that regime, people call you a warmonger. But the reality is, is that at, when, the second this is over, people are going to talk about it the way they talked about the yeah. famine in the Ukraine or the Nazi Germany in the 1930s about why didn't we do more? No one can claim they didn't know what was going on there. And so, uh, to me, it's a sort of an interesting moral point that everyone sort of goes around talking as if the immoral position is doing everything you can to topple that regime sooner. When, in fact, that's the only moral position. It is. uh, You know, uh, the the, the eventual solution to this problem and the eventual cleanup is going to come from China. Uh, I I say this all the time, and I am sort of broken record here. Um, the, The border with China is bigger than the border with South Korea. South Korea is a bottleneck. China's not. The Yalu River, which is one of the rivers that separates North Korea and China, 30 meters wide and very shallow most of the time. I mean, children swim in it in the summer. I've seen it. Um, uh, it's not. It's not that. It's a. It, it's not a porous border because the Chinese have chosen not to be a porous border. But it's not a. It, it's not a, 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 a heavily enforced border either. The, the people can sneak around. Um, and the 23 million emaciated North Koreans, they're going to go north. And so the Chinese really – right now they kind of like – everybody looks at everybody else like, well, what are you going to do about it? But the truth is that, that uh, the Chinese have to solve it. They're the, they're the, they're the uh, supporter of the state. They're the ones that send the food. They're the ones who, who, who make sure that it doesn't erupt into Rwanda. But um, when it does, there's not a lot of appetite in South Korea beyond rhetoric for unification. No, the South Koreans right. don't want them. I mean that's one of the fascinating yeah. things is they don't want them. Is yeah. they, and, well, the Koreans are very practical people. Well, it's um, been, you know, it's been 70, uh, you know, 60, 60 years since, since the separation. You know, remember the German separation was, you know, 40. So 
42, 43. So, you know, that, that, that's, that extra decade, the notion that they're the same country is going to be very hard for, you know, South Koreans to, younger South Koreans certainly have no sense of that. They think of it as an, as an enemy country, not as their own country. But the interesting thing about China... It's a, a different species. I mean, yeah, the South right, Koreans yeah. are pretty racist people to begin with, yeah. but, they, but, you know, the North Koreans are on average, a foot shorter than the South Koreans. Yeah, and right. a different yeah. language. They, they, they look like different people. Right, yeah. It's but, a different you know, language. It's like, it's like there, if, if there's another America somewhere where everyone was still stuck in the 50s saying, oh, applesauce. Yeah. But hey, it is, you know, it's, yeah. it's a different yeah. language. I, I kind of like that America. <laughs> I know. But, you know, but, you know the, the weird thing about the China analogy is China needs to solve this. It won't. It's refused to. You know, it had mm-hmm. 10 years to do, to do something about denuclearizing North Korea. It won't act. It's decided and, you know, won't act in part. The religion of the state is the notion that it is illegitimate to interfere in another state's internal business. That is its claim when anyone says, why are you persecuting the Tibetans? Why are you, yeah. you know, why, why are you putting hundreds of thousands of people in labor camps? And their line is, but out, this is us, this is our personal business, this is the way China has always conducted itself, is that we are ourselves and we don't bother, we don't tell you what to do, and you don't tell us what to do, and if they don't do something about North Korea, you know, part of the issue is... Well, they are, but they're the only thing holding it together. I mean, the, the, the Chinese always talk about, you know, the, the last big d- delivery of aid was about 2005 or something, 2004. And they sent you know giant trains, uh, train loads full of stuff into North Korea, and um, you know food and etc. And they had uh, nothing to plug it all into. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> hey, you know, it's supposed to send the trains back. Uh, you know, a lot of rolling stock was in North Korea, Chinese rolling stock, and and the North Koreans said, no, 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 we think the trains are a g- were part of the gift, and they kept the trains. So like, when you, when you bring somebody at a potluck the dish, and you know, and you're like, oh, I'll just take the dish back. No, 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 the dish is part of the gift. Uh, they kept it. <laughs> And um, so that you know, and, and then every now and then the North Koreans come to China and and, uh, and they have meetings and, and basically they say what they the North Koreans say is we're going to cause trouble abroad if you don't do this or th- that for us and the, the Chinese it is really their client state they need to handle it and they they will I don't I'm not as pessimistic about it as, as you are I just think that w- the American position should be every time North Korea does something we need China. Instead, we have the six-party talks, and we have Jimmy Carter there or somebody, and it just doesn't seem like that's, that's productive. The, the smartest thing to do is to turn to our, our, our strategic partner in the region, China, and say, fix this, or we're going we're gonna to make you pay the price. Uh, we don't do that because we're terrified of China, but I think China would cave ultimately and, and uh, figure out a way to, to humanely euthanize. Uh, the North Korean regime, I think. I mean, look, the, the only way this thing, this thing's all going to, when all falls apart, it's going to be horrible. It doesn't necessarily have to be the really worst, worst thing ever. It could just be a really bad thing. I mean, it's going to be a bad thing, but it doesn't have to be a, um, a giant, um, you know, humanitarian disaster like 10, you know, uh, 100 times Rwanda and Yugoslavia combined. Hey, that's well, funny. One Make hopes. funny jokes about that. It's a funny joke. Okay, There's Jonah, a joke. you're a funny man. Make some funny jokes about that. <laughs> yeah, be funny. Yeah. Be funny now. Yeah. <laughs> you ever get that? Not to. Let's you ever get it. that? Oh, you're funny. So, be funny now. Yeah. Yeah. Like now. A lot. Like this yeah. minute. It's great. Well, you know, speaking of being not funny and being serious. <laughs> well, we're going to talk about extremely Margaret Show now. Serious. Right. Speaking of not funny. We, we need now 
Margaret Cho. Cho. Not funny, Korean. Margaret I mean, Cho. come on, work with me here. It's a perfect. <laughs> it is. It is. Johnny, I apologize. Johnny Yoon. <laughs> Johnny Yoon was funny. What do you mean he Johnny was funny? Okay, he was pretty funny. Okay, but to be completely serious, I have to say that Glop Culture is brought to you by the fine folks at Encounter Books. This week's featured title is a broadside. That's one of their short, punchy, snappy essays. It's called The Truth About the IRS Scandals by Charles Johnson. This broadside will expose the tax collector conspiracy that kneecapped the Tea Party, one of the greatest citizen uprisings in American history, and educate citizens about what has been done so that they might prevent it from ever happening again. Knowledge, particularly of the arcane regulations of the tax code, is power. A lawless tax collector class can only be curtailed by an active citizenry. So go to EncounterBooks.com to get this broadside for a special price for listeners of Ricochet. Enter the code Ricochet, which as you know is spelled R-I-C-O-C-H-E-T, at checkout for an additional 15% off all titles. And our thanks to EncounterBooks for sponsoring Glop Culture. Yes, that, yes, our thanks say that if you are listening to this and you are a member of Ricochet, we thank you and we are pleased to have you as a member. If you are listening to this and you are not a member of Ricochet, please go to ricochet.com and join. Uh, we need your support and we need your membership to keep these great podcasts coming to you and also it's a wonderful site and a lot of great people are writing for it, including we hope you. So please join. So, um, Joni, you wrote a very interesting column recently on how uh, in, in the world of popular culture, uh, authenticity, grittiness, and the sense of being real, these are now all conveyed on television and indeed probably in life itself uh, by vulgarisms, by, by cursing, by swearing, by losing your temper, by this is what is now, um, uh, this is what is now meant by uh, being real. That. Right. This is the next. This is the latest iteration of the of the sort of the the, the vulgarization and 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 uh, uh, of American culture. Do you want to explain what you mean by all this? Yeah, sure. But, I mean, but be funny. Up. But be funny. <laughs> Shut the fuck up. Uh, oh, <laughs> leap. Uh, so the uh, you know uh, it's fun. It was. What was particularly funny to me, so my basic argument, as, as John laid out, was that, um, and it was really driven in part by, by the fact that I love Top Chef, and we've been watching it in my family for 10 years now, and the cursing on Top Chef is constant, and, the, and Bravo insists on sort of, as the New York Times once put it, bleeping at the curse words rather than actually bleeping them out, and so you can tell exactly which words they're saying. Um, and so can my 10-year-old daughter when she watches with us and she likes to watch with us. And it's, it's incredibly frustrating. Um, and even if you watch it on demand to skip the commercials, the commercials on Bravo, as we've talked about this a bunch of times, you know, about the family channel being so raunchy and all that, the commercials on Bravo all begin with some chick talking about some lesbian kiss or some guy talking about how he nailed some girl or something like that. So you can't even invo- avoid that stuff. Um, the promos for other Bravo shows. The, the promos for other Bravo right. shows that serve as commercials during the on-demand version. So anyway, it just you know, and so the the you know the, the defense that you get from people like Anthony Bourdain and others is that the kitchen is such a salty place, and that's what the real kitchen is like, and all that. Okay, fine. Since when is Top Chef 
an authentic journalistic enterprise that must hew to the verite of, of the kitchen when it's asking people to make a Bernays sauce from a vending machine, you know, or where they're constantly talking about how, oh, we then went to Whole Foods and our RAV4s, which are now equipped with Bluetooth, you know, everything <laughs> is a product placement in that thing, you know, make a four-star meal with Hellman's mayonnaise, which is the best mayonnaise, or make a sauce with Dunkin' Donuts. So don't tell me it's like a journalism thing. And, and so anyway, my problem is, is, is not with cursing per se. I think I've established a long time ago, I'm not exactly a prude, or a Comstock, but my problem is with, with the inability of so many people in the popular culture to stay in their lane. And if you're going to have a show that involves cursing, you're going to have commercials that involve all sorts of inappropriate stuff, fine, but put it in, have it where it needs to be and no place else. And instead, sort of the vulgarisms have seeped into everything. Every blogger thinks they're cool if they use, you know, crappy language. Um, you know, every stand-up comic has to go raunchy. Think about the really impressive stand-up comics um, who didn't go raunchy, and you can do them on one hand. And yet, you know, I listen to Sirius, you know, the XM Radio Comedy Network stuff a lot, and it is amazing how relentless right. these guys, they think that, you know, everyone thinks they have to be Lenny Bruce, and if you criticize them for it, think that, that somehow you're, saying, you're, you're stuck actually, up. They all mention Lenny Bruce. The truth is the ones who tend not, not to, as they say, uh, you know, work blue or write with the blue ink. You know, you're too talented, the old comics would say to the young <laughs> Lenny Bruce. You're too talented to write with the blue ink. Um, uh, the ones who t tend not to or, or in general have never or been famous for never, uh, they, they tend to be the richer ones. You know, they tend to be the Jerry Seinfelds and the Bill Cosbys. Yeah, the, the billionaires. Just bigger, right? Yeah. And also, it just requires a certain there's, – there's more artistry to working around some of that stuff. Yeah. Now, again, I'm not going to like yearn for the old days like Ronald Reagan, where the only the only allusions to sex is when the door closed behind the two lovers, and you know they had a "Do Not Disturb" sign on. No, door. you want to see it. You want to see it up close. Yeah, no, yeah. I, you know, I, I'm all. In fa I, I like gratuitous nudity on sure. where gratuitous nudity is worthwhile, but it seems like everyone needs to think that it's rebellious and edgy to cut, well, you know, to get as close to the line on almost every single platform. And instead, you know, I, I, I'm much more nostalgic for sort of a Victorian model where the common sphere, the common square, the public square is one that is open to the most people. But then if you want to go get your freak flag on behind some closed door in the culture, fine, but have a door there. But, the, but here's the problem is that the, 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 they are correct when you say on, on, especially on, on Top Chef, just specifically Top Chef. Uh, those people in their daily lives use that language all the time. Okay. Those the, the kitchen is a filthy place where people. It's a locker room, and there's a lot of uh, they, they. They that that is what a professional kitchen is often. Okay. Um, so or journalist and, newsrooms. I mean, there are yeah, lots of. Yeah, but here's the difference: is that when you put normal and ordinary people on television, they're not professionals. They do forget it. They talk no, the way here's they talk. Where you're exactly wrong about this, and I made this point in the column. This, this, this is one of the things that really annoys me about this defense of Top Chef. Tom Colicchio wrote this post for this blog about this. He says, not once do these guys ever curse in front of me. They never curse at judges' table. They never curse okay. um, it, when Colicchio walks into the kitchen. Th when they curse on the show, it's not just when, you know, oh, crap, their Bernays sauce broke and they have to start over. <laughs> they curse when they do their interviews on camera. 
where they sit there and they are dropping F-bombs right, left, and center. And I find it really hard to believe that grown people feel like they can remember not to curse in front of Tom Colicchio in person, but they can't remember on the TV show that you know he's going to edit and watch. It is, it is this pose of authenticity that you get. I, don't, I, 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 hear, I, I agree with the first part. I don't agree with the second part. It, it, I, I don't think it's a pose of authenticity. I think it's just they are actually – there is no social uh, um, uh, uh, punishment for using those words not only on Top Chef but in, on the street. The, the, the culture. I don't think it's specific to Bravo or specific to that show that they're encouraged to. It's 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 just that those people don't think it. They understand there are times when you don't use those words, but they don't think that their interview is a time not to. It's, when they it's know not that they're, Bravo. When they know that their kids and millions of people are going to watch it. It doesn't matter. They, yeah, I, I really I think that's the cultural problem that, that happens in every Bravo show, by the way. Not just I, I agree. I agree, and I think it's, it's just encouraged the by Bravo. People no longer think that's unusual to hear the F word on the street in, in, in public. They just don't think it's unusual. That's bad, but I don't think it's specific to, to – to, uh, well, I, I agree it's not specific to, to Top Chef. It's, a top Chef is emblematic of the problem, and it's a problem across the culture. And so it turns out that the people you – know, my whole point is, is that vulgarity is basically the norm now. And the, 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 the be rebellious is to, is to yeah. not work blue because that's what's going against the standard. But I, I mean I, here's the difference. I don't think those people, those chefs on Top Chef are working blue. I don't think they're making a choice. The choice they're making is when they are talking to Tom Colicchio, who is the boss and who they all you know, revere, and when their judges' table is all standing up straight, they understand that there are certain, there are certain situations where you have to – Watch your language. But the default setting for that generation, for those people, and probably for the culture in general, and for right outside my front door, the default setting is let it fly. And that yeah, is a problem. I, I agree that's a problem. I agree. I, I'll even agree it's part of the problem. But I, I, I find it, I, at the same time, I have a really hard time believing that, that these obviously intelligent professional people can't understand that when a television camera is on you, you might want to cut back on the expletive. Expletive. No, no. Right? But I, I, here's where I, I think. Here's where I think Rob isn't exactly right. I'm sorry to say because I always like to think that Rob is right. Isn't but, exactly but right. You're not exactly right. I'm going to explain <laughs> to you why. Because because where Jonah is hitting the mark is that people believe that when they talk raw. They are being more real. And that is a cultural fact of our time that is being enhanced and driven in part by popular culture. So that a serious conversation in which you really let somebody know how you feel about them has got to be punctuated by profanity because otherwise you're controlling yourself. You're containing her. You're not being real, you know. It's that real world thing where they say, you know, this is when they start, they stop being real. Yeah. Yeah. And then they start acting real, the real world. So that's a larger cultural, that's a larger cultural problem, but it is in part being driven by popular culture. They think, they think that they're being real by talking dirty and they also are pretty sure 
the more confrontational they are and the more, you know, real they are, the more screen time they're going to get, which of course is the other Maybe. great challenge of being on a reality TV show is being the it's one the to get the puck. most screen time. But this is exactly. also a, a competition show. I, I would just look at it from the other end of the telescope. When they are not being real is when they are behaving, when they are not using that language. That is not real to them. When they are being real, talking the way they ordinarily talk, it's when they are using the, 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 the bad language. That's, that's when they're, they're most real. I don't think they're pretending. They're not trying to be authentic. That's who, how they really are. Uh, it's when they're on their best behavior that they're not using the language. And I think Jonah's point, I think he's uh, almost right, is that you should be – when you're in public and you're on TV, you should always be on your best behavior. And I think that's true. But that isn't – I mean I think it's wrong to say those, those guys are just kind of pretending and trying to be hip and cool and using the F-bomb. No, no. That's how they really talk in real life all the time. But I mean look. I, I say this as somebody who I do struggle in my daily work with my language. I have – I have – I speak horribly half the time and I need to remember to not do that. But I do remember how to be on my best behavior. But what, what the argument to those guys on Top Chef should be, no, no, you're always on TV. Why can't you be on your best behavior? Why can't we as a culture in general, when we leave the front door, be on our best behavior rather than you know, use this kind of language, uh, which I hear on the street all the time? I wouldn't mind the cursing during the quick fire. I totally get that. My argument there is with Bravo for not bleeping it properly. But listen, My problem is, is when they're sitting there talking sitting there. and they're giving an interview – and they and, and a lot of these people talk about how their kids watch this, and the, you yeah. know, all of their customers watch this. And you know, Colicchio right. in season four actually gave a speech to his to to the cast, to the Chicago cast, saying, "You guys might want to cut back on the language. You are professionals, and you want to see be concerned with how you perceive you're perceived." Right. He said he's correct. But, yeah, but any kitchen has it. You know, when Thomas Keller opened um, French Laundry, when he when he first opened it, so he he bought the building and it was kind of an old building, and the kitchen was small. And he, he, he remodeled the kitchen and put windows in the kitchen. It was one of the first big professional kitchens in the world to have windows. So you could actually – if you're working there, you could actually kind of look outside and see a tree. And, um, and his only rule was no yelling. And if you go into that kitchen, it's just a bunch of professionals working together and there's no yelling. There's no cursing. There's no nothing. I mean there's just a sort of a general hum of activity. But everybody's very serious and purposeful, and nobody yells. And as a result, it's a you know one of the best restaurants in the world. Um, I don't know if that's as a result, but it, it definitely is a result of his leadership in all these other areas. It's one of the best restaurants in the world, and so there is probably an argument to be made. But I would say there's an argument made. I mean, I remember as a kid, I remember when I first heard that word in public, and like the shock of it, of hearing another adult use that term, was just like it's such a breach of decorum. That I, I remember thinking, I don't know, I was six or seven or something, thinking, oh, that's out, that's, that's crazy. Um, and now, I mean, I was at a party last night, a Christmas party, to people, kids running around, and there was one grown up and using the language. And it was like one of the kids said, hey, I heard one of the kids like tell his dad, uh, you know, so and so. I heard, I heard it's, you know, but that's the kind of language you would never hear. Yeah, I mean, it's in, funny, you know, Michael Medved yeah. gave a great speech. I guess he had a book about this in the 90s. I remember he gave a speech at AEI about this in the mid '90s about how in Hollywood, you know, his part of his big argument was that Hollywood um, uh, goes for the R rating even when it's against the economic interests of the studio. I mean, we can get into yes. argument about all that, but he had the, the anecdotes about Dustin Hoffman and that that pretty awful movie Hero. 
um, where it was supposed to be a sort of a Frank, Frank Capra kind of movie. Right. And, and Hoffman almost walked away from the deal if he couldn't get like f- at least like six F-bombs in the movie because that, his character needed the F-bombs to be a believable real character. And the studio was like, you know, this is supposed to be aimed at like family audiences and you're going to screw up our rating by doing this. And he's like, I don't care. It's, I have to be true to my heart. And you know, that kind of stuff, I, mean, I, I think some of that stuff we are da- now downstream from that change in the culture where there was this <coughs> race to prove authenticity right. in the culture by cursing. Um, and I just think it's, it's just, it's just, be, my point, my larger point wasn't so much about Thomas Jefferson, it was just, it's just all so boring and predictable now. I mean, this idea that somehow, you know, it's, it's edgy whenever, when, as you say, people are doing it at cocktail parties and people are doing it around kids. Um, it's just so lazy now. Well, it's, it's, it's like porn, you know, it used to be a thing that was like a special thing that was kind of, you know, now it's, it's just, it's just a normal part of your, of the, what, what passes in front of your media. Um, well, you know, the other thing is, but you know, we, we do have all these, we do have all these counter examples of, you know, what happens when the media do things that are, are, are intended to be a direct counter to all of this, like, it was terrible, but like the you know gigantic ratings for this live sound of music. Uh, was it terrible? It was awful. <laughs> I mean, it, it's not its fault. The 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 show. No. It was the it was basically a transcription of the stage version. It was not a remake of the movie, and the stage show was terrible. You know, except it has four or five really wonderful songs. But you know, it got I don't know eighteen and a half, nineteen million people watched it. It was the you know biggest rating on NBC in four years or five years or something like that. And it was deliberately done as a family viewing event, right? So, so on the one hand, it's a big event; you can promote it for a month and all of that. And on the other hand, it goes directly against the notion uh, in the culture that the only way to break through the noise barrier and the you know five thousand channels and how there's too much product and everything is to be racy and edgy and you know and uh, confrontational and and do something to break out of the crowd um the the relief uh that people must have felt that they could sit down at eight o'clock at night and watch something with their kids that would not you know that would not raise all these questions about whether or not they should or shouldn't watch it you know, I have this now. I have a nine-year-old. The nine-year-old wants to watch The Big Bang Theory. I have watched a couple of episodes of The Big Bang Theory. From what I what what I saw, it is full of extremely vulgar, uh, you know, referential sexual humor. Now that may oh, pass a right lot over of it. I won't let my daughter watch it. Right. So, and I won't let really her watch The Big it. Bang Theory. Yeah, I won't let her watch it either. But I mean, if I if she can't watch the most popular show on television, she said, "Like you tell me, there are too many things I can't watch." She said, and at some point, it is like you know, as as friends of mine, you know, have have been telling me for years, it's like the battle to have to live in a world in which you have to do battle with the common culture every yeah. minute of every day. Eight o'clock show or an eight thirty show. Used to be, we used to say that in uh, you know. Um, it used to be a term we would say in, in, in the business, like, uh, so-and-so's an 8 o'clock writer versus so-and-so's an 8, you know, 9 o'clock writer. And you kind of always want to be a 9 o'clock writer because that was more grown up. But I can remember when, um, when I first started and uh, yeah, we would get – on Cheers, we would get you know, messages from, the, from what they call standards of practices of the network. And they'd say, well, you know, 
you've you used ass already this season twice. Um, we'd like you to change. You know, not used ass, and, and you got also used but bastard. So you'd have long, you know, you'd have big negotiations about ass and bastard, and that's about it. I mean, you, n- nothing else was acceptable and now on cable uh they will they continue every year they in cable they let you know that there are more words that you can say um and remember it's not enforced by anybody it's enforced by their own standard of decency but um but they you know everybody it, it is a race to the bottom i mean i was surprised last year what we could get away with on our show and i'm surprised what i can get away with on fx um uh <laughs> i don't recommend. I mean, have you watched sons of anarchy yeah i mean the, I mean, I love Sons of Anarchy, but I mean, basically, it is becoming the the lack of full frontal nudity is is basically <laughs> this giant is like where it's the elephant in the room. I mean, everything else is allowed except for you know. It kind of reminds me. There's that great line from The Simpsons where they flash forward 20 years and an aged Homer and Marge are watching TV and the room is glowing from the TV as they watch it in bed and Marge just sit, turns to Homer and says, "You know, homie." Fox's transition to a 24-hour sex channel was so gradual, I hardly even noticed. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's really true. I mean, I, that, it does move that. I mean, but, you should, but, but Sons of Anarchy, you would never, ever mistake that show for something to watch with your kids. Never. Never. Right. right. But, but like Top Chef – yeah, like, I, I mean, Tom Colicchio talks about how much he loves the fact that. Okay, young you know what? You know what? I think we need to. Chef. We need to. We need to stop talking about Top Chef. I was just. I was just saying as a counterpoint. There are so many of us who don't watch Top Chef, and I've been, <laughs> we've been talking about Top Chef. But, no, but 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 John's point about Big Bang Theory is absolutely right. There's some stuff in that, that they don't need to do, mm-hmm. um, of a sexual nature. Um, you know, I mean, they can do it or they cannot do it. I'm just saying as a general matter. There is a there is a kind of uh, vigilance that if you're a certain type of person, you want to raise your kids in a certain type of way. There's a kind of vigilance that you have to. Oh, absolutely. That, that, absolutely. that is that is that is imposed upon you by the culture that is exhausting. And you know, no one is saying they don't have the right and they shouldn't do this and they shouldn't do that. And I'm not talking about organizing boycotts. It's just a kind of plaint about the world that we you know we we live in now and the question that we don't have an answer to and that we'll never have an answer to because these are always things that are decided by other later generations is what is this all doing to us you know how what effect is it having on relationships and what kids are like with their parents and what parents are like with their children and all of that and there's you know you can't see that when you're in the middle of it it's 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 impossible to tell um, alarmism seems uh, ludicrous because people, after all, go on and on, and they do right. what they have to do, and not, you know, and then then they live their lives, and they do and they. But on the other hand, you know, it, of course, it makes a difference. Of course, of course, cultural images and cultural imagery and the kinds of things that were were peddled from the time that we're kids, you know, get seep into our unconscious and help direct us and guide us in ways that we don't understand and. And right the right now, it doesn't look that good. You know, it's not like you can say, "Boy, it's a really healthy culture that we are popular culture that we're feeding to our mm-hmm. children." But have we always you said that? I listened to on, on Diane Reem yesterday in the car a oh, little she's bit. She's filthy, by the way. She's it, filthy. She's a dirty bird. <laughs> and uh, it was either yesterday or the day before. And anyway, they had a it was a whole segment on on um, 
porn, web porn, and like how to keep your kids away from it. Should you keep your kids away from it? What is it doing? And I was turning in and out of it because I just, I, 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 it had the feeling of a cutaway from an airplane movie, you know, mm-hmm. or like you, know, you yeah. Yeah. what's the scene with the you meat eating, you know, crypto nuclear war guys or whatever. Anyway, so I was, I couldn't quite take it seriously, but you know, Diane Reem. I mean, her, I, I got the sense her heart was in the right place, but she kept asking, she kept like many, many times coming back to this question of the, of whether or not there's any educational value to pornography where young people <laughs> can go on the web to you and learn how to really do it <laughs> and, and, and like learn how things are done. And this, and what was particularly interesting was the, the psychologist expert guy, um, who's been studying this in depth. <laughs> One can only imagine how he has to hide his office yeah, exactly. from his kids. Um, uh, or or how saying, it started. Well, he just had so much on his hard drive. He said, it's for a research project. And then, of course, he had to end up doing the same research project. <laughs> but so he was, he was tr- at pain, the, the complete vernacular of non-judgmentalism. Right? Yeah. It was, oh, this is an excellent question. And he says, we do have some evidence that there is some educational value for people to sort of demystify sex and to see what, how this or that is done and blah, 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 blah. But he says, let us keep in mind that in real life, people do not have sex with an eye towards the best camera angles. <laughs> and, <laughs> but, you know, this also reminds me of you know, Ross, Ross, Ross Douthat wrote a column this week. Uh, in which he pointed out puckishly that the new survey finding that suggests that fathers of daughters end up conservative, and he and he said, or vote Republican, and he said, why would this be so? Well, I just read this very good novel called The Affairs of Nathaniel P. by Adele Waldman, and it's a portrait of the way we live now sexually, a writer in Brooklyn and all of his conquests and how the women in his, in his life in this novel are people that he treats badly. He doesn't even know he's treating them badly because he's basically in a kind of sexual cafeteria. He's going through them. He isn't making any decisions. They want to you know, make a life for, for themselves with someone and he has no interest. And, you know, and there is something to this, said Ross, whereupon – Slate and this one and that one wrote these. Ross Douthat has written another insane column in which he claims that, you know, all he's trying to do is disempower the sexuality of women. Right. Women now have sexual they, – they, they can experiment just like men. They can do this. They can do that. And he – how dare he? And then the New Republic actually went and interviewed Adele Waldman, the author of this book, who after all – had just had a great coup because her book had been the subject of a New York Times op-ed piece, you know, which is a great coup for a novel. It's off the book page copy. And uh, Adele Waldman terrified that her novel might be taken as some sort of conservative manifesto said, well, I don't, I don't want to read Nathaniel that way. And there are many different angles on which to take. Yes. I mean, I think the treatment of women is a problem, but I'm not going to judge. And you should, cause she didn't want her friends and her people to think that, you know, any conservative right. could take sucker from her book. Um, and so there we have another example of, if you dare raise your head up and say, you know, maybe uh, a libertine sexual culture does not provide the best basis for a bourgeois 
you know, lifestyle of, you know, of husband and wife, monogamous relationship, long lasting and long standing. Although it's awesome for dudes. yeah, Yeah. You are disempowering women. Whereas the whole point about this book is that women are being disempowered by the culture and men are being empowered, which is, you know, which is a long standing argument about, you know, about, about modern feminism, that it has had this perverse consequence in which men have been liberated sexually and women have been, their lives have been made more difficult with men, uh, not easier. But anyway, uh, I've been wanting to write a piece for a while now, partly just to imagine the cover on national review of, uh, the return of penis envy. Because there is this amazing sort of, I mean, you're getting right at it, this amazing glitch in feminist culture that seems to think that living down to male standards is a step up for women. You know, and like, I remember in high school, me and my buddies, we used to like have this long running joke about how disgusted we would be with women who were just like us. You know, it was like, Look at the – you know, you imagine talking to a girl. Look at the way you eat. I don't want to be with you. That's disgusting, you know. And now there's this idea that somehow the male ideal standard of philandering and not making emotional commitments and treating women like objects is the only way to liberate women. And it's, it's, it's terribly sad, at least for me, given that I have a daughter. Yeah, me too. I have two. So now um, – I think it's awesome. As we, are, <laughs> as we are nearing the end of the year, I, I, uh, I wonder um, whether anybody has say a top two or three uh, movies of, 19, of 2013 that they want to uh, recommend or commend to our, our listeners. I haven't seen any movies. I, they, they send them all you – know, this around the time of year, you get what they call screeners and the, and the studios will send um, – never with their big hits because they figure, hey, if you haven't seen Gravity, you haven't seen it. But um, they're littler, littler movies and I have a stack of them. I've got to, got to plow through. I haven't seen any of them. But I am like such a, such a nerd. I, I watch Turner Classic movies all the time and I recently saw a movie, the movie The Women uh, directed by George Cukor with uh, – I mean, Joan Norma Crawford, Shearer, Norma Shearer, Joan. Joan Crawford. It's a great, great picture, and it's. Uh, I would, I would, I, I think that should win the Oscar this year. Yeah. First of all, it actually is relevant to what we we're just talking about. But it's um, a great movie. But it's a great movie, and I. Yeah, so I, I, I'll answer your question by not answering it by saying the women from 1936 or 37, <laughs> 39 actually. 39. But um, right, well, wow. I will look you at know. you. I, why did even I, Why did even bring it up? You, you would, are you IMDb being right now? We just can't tell. No, I just know. Oh, John. <laughs> just, no, I'm sorry. Anyway. So you say that so sadly. That was, you know, 1939 was one of the great years in history for movies. That was a year of. Uh, of for movies. Uh, Gone with the Wind. Yeah, and, for, uh, movies. for movies. It wasn't, wasn't so great otherwise. Yeah. Right. Not a great year otherwise. And as it, happens, year. as it happens, after a decade or more of pretty lousy American movies in aggregate, 20, 2013 has been a spectacular yeah. year for American movies. You um, see a lot and of movies. there are. Well, I, I I I I write about them for a living in part, so that's why I see them. But but as it ha- but it, but it's been a, the last that's three true. or four months have been a, a have been a nearly unalloyed pleasure because there's been a lot of good things to see. And right now, um, Pacific Rim. Uh, uh, <laughs> Pacific Rim was not good. I don't care what Jonah says. 
It was very stupid and long, and there were a lot of robots punching each other in the rain. It was it was not robots good. in the rain. Let me call the rain. No, the that. robots was dark in the rain. And it didn't look like anyway. I'm going to stream that today. <laughs> you stream that today. No, right now at the at the multiplex, as we say, um, uh, this week opened American Hustle, a movie about the ab scam affair uh, of the late 1970s and the. Incredibly unlikely story of a shyster uh, Bronx uh, glass replacement manufacturer who actually came up with the idea for Abscam and nailed seven congressmen and a senator. Um, this is a, this tells his story, but also is a wildly fictional gloss. Uh, Christian Bale is unbelievable in it. Uh, Jennifer Lawrence, who plays his slatternly wife, is unbelievable in it as is amy adams as his slatternly Wonderful. girlfriend and it is, it is can we just stop and say great use of slattern and thank slattern. you thank you very much you don't hear anyway, that often. anyway it's 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 propulsive and lively and interesting and and thrilling and it's it's, it's really good Propulsive and Propulsive. also like- really, really wonderful. Although, although a much different sort of picture and one that does not precisely have a plot is Inside Lewin Davis, which is the Coen Brothers movie about a folk singer in 1961 New York for whom everything is going wrong. It is like the reverse Bob Dylan story. It is a story of a very talented guy who can't get a leg up. Anywhere, and the evocation of its time is beautiful, and the movie is soulful and funny and sad and powerful, um, and that will you know be around uh, for a long time. And then, of course, there is there are the other ones that people have been you know talking about for for months. Captain Phillips with, with Tom Hanks, which is the story of the the Somali pirate capture of this. A cargo container ship um, in 2009, which is great, and Hanks is great in it, and 12 Years a Slave, which is a very good movie, although extremely difficult to watch. And if you get a chance, there is this movie called All is Lost, which is an incredible achievement. It is a movie about one person. It's Robert Redford on a boat. The boat, he's on a sailboat. He's sailing around the world. It begins with the hull of the, of his of his one man sailboat being breached by a actually a, a, a loose container in the water, mm. and what he does for the next eight days to try to keep himself alive. One person, you see no one else. Mm. Um, no uh, there is not much dialogue. There are no robots. Uh, there is. I would put in some robots. There's are no time to sell me on it or not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're not doing great. <laughs> there is no. There is no time. Yeah, but. What is thrilling? Terrible about marketing it, campaign. What is thrilling about it? Thrilling is that it manages to be gripping, and you cannot keep your eyes off it, even though it is this radically curtailed story of this boat, this one guy in this one boat. It's really a coup, and and uh, and I I, I you know you. I heartily recommend it. So it's been a it's been a You're it's a been a great. Booster. It's been a great year, and Gravity is really good. I mean, it's been a really good but year. Yeah, for no, I saw Gravity. I like yeah. Gravity. I saw um, – you know what You know what you left that, which I thought was kind of ignored. Maybe you had a problem with it. I liked Prisoners. Did I see didn't Prisoners? see Prisoners because it has it had children in jeopardy, and I've got a I'm, – I'm allergic to children in jeopardy movies. I just – I can't watch them. It, it gets too uh, – You mean in the state of peril, not the game show? Yeah. 
Yes, exactly. <laughs> weird. Those are the That's only movies silence. I watch. It's weird. Like we're like we're like Jack Spratt and his wife. I will only see movies with children in Jeopardy. Well, I I, I, I mean, I, it is literally the case that I had no problem with seeing movies about children in Jeopardy until I had children, and now I just find it. It's like, it's well, what do you like, think a child is like? Is it is a college kid? Is that a child? No, you mean a, like a, a child? No, I mean children. I mean, I mean, you know, you know. Children to teenagers. If they you go off go to back college, and watch, uh, Hunger Games. You if they're off to college, Willow. No. What? Remember, remember that awful George Lucas movie Willow, where the MacGuffin was an infant, and they're like <laughs> throwing it from like stagecoaches <laughs> and off of cliffs. Yeah. And I love that. Also, <laughs> Ghostbusters Two did that. There's this whole thing about how I will now kill the child, and my yeah. the, the brilliant plot in Ghostbusters Two was to yes, put a baby. <laughs> you know, make a baby the vessel for you know for 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 evil or or how time. about honey? I blew up the kid. Oh yeah, it was a different time. Honey, in which the idea is it'd be really good to take a baby and make the baby fifty feet you know tall so that the mother of the baby can't hold the baby when the baby cries. Well, that I was mean, a really great marketing idea. That does remind you know, me of this. People of the really moment. want to see a sad baby whose mother is too small to pick. The up. only movie that ever worked with a baby as a MacGuffin was Raising Arizona. And even that made you nervous at times. Well, that's right. But the whole thing about raising Arizona was that all of these people who were kidnapping the, this this love baby, the baby in love with the baby. Yeah, yeah, that yeah, was yeah. the brilliance of the joke of raising Arizona. Was suddenly it's you know this 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 uh, this scheme goes awry because every every low life in <laughs> every you know, low life two, in the Southwest wants though. to adopt this baby. So in my in my obsessive watching of old movies, right? I mentioned the women. There's a wonderful line in the women when the mom says, when she when she's ready to go to bed, she goes, "Oh, I love sleeping by myself. You can just spread out like a swastika." <laughs> wow! <laughs> yeah. Like all right, I guess in 1939, it didn't have quite the resonance. Wow. <laughs> spread out like a swastika. And wow. then there's a scene in, and I like this is a hobby this week. I'm re- rewatching Annie Hall. Annie Hall's on TV, and uh, Annie uh, and Woody Allen comes back to LA to to, to try to win his uh, win uh, Diane Keaton back, and he d- it doesn't go well. Is at a health food restaurant in um, in uh, 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 on the Sunset Strip, and he and he and, and pulling out, he manages to hit three cars, and he gets arrested and thrown in jail. And his best friend, who's now a sitcom actor, Tony Roberts has to come and pick him up from the Hollywood jail. And he picks him up, and, and he's mad at him. And he goes, you, you, I can't believe you called me. And, and, uh, and Woody says, I'm sorry, who else am I supposed to call? And he looks at him and said, I had twins. I was in bed with twins, Max. Yeah. He calls him Max. <laughs> twins. And, um, and, and uh, Woody says, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. He goes, they were 16 years old, Max. Can you imagine the possibilities? And they get in the car to drive away. And- yeah, yeah, that wouldn't happen now. No, because it's statutory yeah, because rape. Because then, because then, because <laughs> then, then uh, a a a cop and yeah. Gloria Allred would pull up in the next car, but and the cop would arrest him, like, and Gloria Allred would call a press conference. But I guarantee you, it was statutory girl. rape back then too. Of course, it was. He loves making that joke. By the way, there's that yeah, there's right. that bit in in uh, in um, in Love and Death where where you know. Woody Allen goes to the the old priest and says, "What is the meaning of life?" And the priest says, "Blonde, twelve-year-old girls, <laughs> two whenever possible." So clearly, this yeah, is a but nobody nobody in the theater fantasy. Yes. Nobody in the theater at the time said, "Oh my lord!" No, they said, oh "What a lord. hipster! What a what a wacky yeah, hipster! What a wacky LA hipster!" Back then, the culture just spread out like a swastika. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I think we have spread out like the American flag. Yeah, Blazing with color, That's 50 good. stars. Nice save. Uh, the Stars and Stripes, Betsy Ross, Francis Scott Key. Yeah, all the great Americans. It's a great, it's a great moment for our, our time, I think. And, uh, and, uh, and uh, uh, please, uh, now that we are uh, approaching Christmas, you must put your, your television on the Hallmark Channel and break your remote because all the Hallmark Channel does now is run Christmas movies about hard-charging female executives played by former stars of Saved by the Bell <laughs> who go to their hometown uh-huh. – and 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 reunite with their old boyfriend Dean Kane. <laughs> wow, that's the that, those are there, good I think there are I would say 60 of these movies. One's called The Christmas Card, one's called Christmas Bells, one's called The Christmas Day, one's called The Christmas Night. And it's kind of amazing uh, when you think about it. Is that, is that, that the real reason you walked out of that thing at the 92nd Street Y? Yeah, I did so see, many movies yes. on Hallmark. I well, I was upset because they the one Hanukkah movie was was on and I was missing it. Well, I just love that every the Christmas Hanukkah movie candle. Yeah, every Christmas sorry. movie has the same moment where the the person who doesn't who needs to learn about Christmas Christmas. Oh, give me a break! I don't have time for Christmas. That's right. I have to. I have right. to beat my competitors in my business. Whatever. But I will tell you this. This may be my my closing thought here, which is. All this talk about you know being real and 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 Top Chef and all of that, the fantasy of these movies is a fantasy of moving into a Christmas movie. That is to say, people go in, they're in this small town, and the and there's snow and there are Christmas lights everywhere, and you walk into somebody's house and they're wearing a cable knit sweater and they hand you a cup of eggnog and yeah. there's a fire in the fireplace and there are carolers on the porch. I don't think that, you know, this really ever happens in this, you know, perfect sequence anywhere on earth. Um, Utah. But we all would like it, even if we're Jewish. We w- this is our dream of, of, of social comedy and peace and togetherness and love and family. And, and here we are in 2013. We're all real. We want to keep it real. And in fact, nobody wants to keep it real. Everybody wants to live in a comforting fantasy about, you know, life being pleasant and sweet and not, you know, punishing and awful. And that's that's where I come down. What's funny about that? <sighs> no, you're right. Blonde, blonde, the world of blonde 12-year-old Goyles. <laughs> Two, whenever possible. I, are we supposed to do any uh, plugs for upcoming yes. jobs or whatever? I, I will be walking off the stage. At the, <laughs> anyway, please go ahead, Jonah. Oh, I, I'm not sure I really have one. I, I am excited to uh, let people keep – I don't know what the air dates are yet, but um, C-SPAN has that show afterwards where one pundit or author interviews another pundit or author about their book. And I am going to be interviewing our friend Yuval Levin about his book on Thomas Paine and Edmund Burke, which I review which, in the newest issue of Commentary on Stan's Which will be on Stan's uh, shortly and wow. which we will free up. Once we have it up on the website, we will free up for everyone to read, including wonderful Ricochet Glop Culture podcast uh, listeners. And I had no idea that Commentary now pays $10 a word. It's amazing. It is amazing. It is amazing. It, it is Wait, amazing. But the editor's fee is eight and a half dollars a word. <laughs> well, that's true. That's as it should be. 
you know, and then and then and then my agent gets commission. So you you really turn up with about thirty cents a word. I'm afraid, right. but you know, look that that's that's the way things are these days. It's a digital age. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I have I have nothing else really to announce. Uh, Rob, you got anything? Uh I will be appearing um, in my living room with a cable knit sweater, holding a glass of eggnog. Um, because that happens all the time. I, I mean, that, in my life, that happens pretty much every every day during the Christmas season. <laughs> um, no, I'm nothing. I'm not. Uh, I'm not doing anything. I'm, I'm trying to finish a little project I've got by Friday morning, and then I'm taking it off. Um, I have a surprise birthday party to go to on Monday, and I can't say. I don't know whether he, this gentleman listens to this podcast. I don't think he does, but I don't want him to know it's happening. That's all I got. <laughs> John, you got nothing other than walking off various places. Right? I am, I am, I am going to uh, Israel on on Thursday with my wife and uh, a nine year old and a seven year old and a three year old going in economy class. So pray for me. Oh my lord! Pray for me. Pray for me. Thank you. Uh, and I will be there uh, looking for panels to walk off. Uh, and so please keep keep. Uh, I'll keep you posted uh, on Twitter. Uh, Hopefully there will be marginally more pro-Israel than the 92nd Street Y. Marginally. You know, half, you know, that's, uh, that's hopefully, yes. So <laughs> thank you guys very much, and we'll, we'll, we'll reconvene in the new year yes. with, hey, with all new. Jonah, with, John, Merry Christmas. I hope that Rob, doesn't offend you. Rob, happy, happy holidays from, <laughs> from this white Santa Claus. Happy seasons. <laughs> I hope ethnically indiscriminate and indeterminate Santa Claus brings you all that you wish for. <laughs> all the sustainable gifts you wish for. <laughs> uh, See you, fellas. Later. On Christmas Eve, the Gentiles gather round the Christmas tree. They stay at home and party with their Goyesha family. They disappear one day each year and pass the eggnog round. But it's all right, because that's the night the Jews control the town.
Ricochet. Join the conversation.